Uh, you, may have, you, you may know this, uh, you may have heard about this a few weeks ago, a social media influencer named Haladia Baldwin was outed on social media for misleading the public about her uh, Spanish descent and faking her Spanish accent. Anybody familiar with the story? She's the wife of uh, the actor Alec Baldwin. As it turns out, uh, she was born and raised in Boston, not in Spain after all. And this upset a lot of people. Some of you might also remember uh, the controversy back in 2015 surrounding a woman by the name of Rachel Dolezal. Dolezal was the president of the NAACP chapter in Spokane, Washington, until it was learned that Dolezal was actually a white woman, not a black woman. Dolezal acknowledged that she was, uh, she was, quote, born white to white parents, but she maintained that she self-identified as black. In each, of those, in each of those cases, uh, the women involved were severely criticized, uh, even punished for choosing how they wanted to identify. Haladia uh, Baldwin received massive criticism on social media and in the traditional media for uh, what they called cultural appropriation. She had to defend herself on Instagram. She, she had to do a New York Times interview. She's still having to defend herself about this. Uh, Rachel Dolezal was removed from her position as the president of the NAACP, uh, removed from her position as an instructor in Africana Studies at Eastern Washington University, and she was charged by the state of Washington with felony theft uh, by welfare fraud, and charged also with second-degree perjury. Pretty serious. On the other hand, uh, a month or so ago, the former actress and star of the movie Juno, who was formerly named Ellen, Ellen Page, was celebrated when she announced on Twitter, quote, here's what she said. She said, hi, friends. I want to share with you that I am trans, that my pronouns are he, they, and my name is now Elliot. And then, of course, in July of 2015, uh, the former Olympic gold medal winning decathlete Bruce Jenner was celebrated uh, when he announced that he was changing his name to Caitlin and underwent sex reassignment surgery in 2017. Now, what I, I want you to understand, I want to make sure that you understand this, that I, I'm not making fun of any of the people involved. All of four of those people that I just mentioned are human beings created in the image of God, and as a result, they're infinitely valuable uh, to our creator. I am, though, trying to point out the curious logic of modern identity politics, which celebrates the changing of gender, but not race. Why, why is one of those malleable while the other is sac sacrosanct? Like, why, why can you change your gender, uh, but not your race? Just from, from a purely logical basis, that seems oddly arbitrary and capricious to me, let alone thinking about all of the astounding moral issues and moral implications that are involved. And yet, even as I point out the illogic and the, some of the morality issues involved of modern identity politics, I have to admit, that there is some hypocrisy in me when I act so shocked by all of that. I mean, after all, I, I've been confused about my own identity at various times in my life. He even changed my identif 
my identity more than a few times. Now, let's be careful. <laughs> Just so, that, for those of you who might be about to fall out of your pew, I want to make sure you understand I'm not making a big announcement this morning. Uh, trust me, I've never had questions about my race or, or, or my gender, never been confused about those things. But, but truly, if I'm honest with myself, I have to say that I've been very confused about my identity in other ways throughout my life. For instance, uh, before I, before I got into ministry, uh, I, I thought of myself as just an ordinary guy, and so, so did all of my friends. They, they treated me just, just like an ordinary guy. And then almost as soon as I left my business career and went to seminary, people around me started treating me differently. People apologized for their language around me. They started asking me to pray at, at certain occasions. It seemed like People were shocked if I wanted to talk about normal things like sports or a stock market or cars. And I started receiving mail that said, Reverend, that'll blow your mind when you do that. <laughs> I found all of that terribly confusing. And, and to be very candid with you, I still find it uh, confusing all these years later. Every occupation has its issues. And I'm not asking you to feel sorry for me. But to me, one of the most challenging aspects of being a vocational pastor is the loneliness that comes from being considered different from everyone else. And then about eight years ago, I was fired from a church, and I was confused about my identity again for a while. If a tree falls in the forest and there's no one there to hear it, does it make a sound? And if a pastor's run out of a church and there's no one to hear him preach, is he still a pastor? That was sort of the question that I found myself asking. In the last couple of years, Amy and I, I, I do this because she's sitting up there. Amy and I have been navigating life as empty nesters. Like for over two decades, my identity as a father to Corey, Blake, and Colin, all of that was, that was, it was clear to me, it was front and center. And you know, while I'm still their father and find enormous joy in that, um, I do wonder sometimes, who am I now that my sons have essentially flown the coop? And I suspect that, I suspect that if you're honest with yourself, you can relate too to confusion about your own identity at times in your life. For 25 years, you were someone's wife or husband, and then your spouse died. Who, who are you now? For 15 or 20 years, you thought of yourself, always, you know, you were a student. You were a kid. You were a student, and now you've graduated from school. Who are you now? You and your spouse have been newlyweds for the last three or four years, but now you're expecting a child, and you're about to become parents. Is that confusing to you? For most of my life, I wanted to become a Major League Baseball player, a pitcher to be exact, and I'm this close to giving up my dream on that. Who would I be if I give up my dream <laughs> on that? Some of you might uh, remember the, the actor Peter Sellers from the Pink Panther movies. I, I know I'm dating myself, but anybody remember uh, him? Yep. His biography was entitled uh, The Mask Behind the Mask, and in it, the author writes that Sellers played so many roles that he really wasn't sure of his identity, and he was once approached by a fan who asked, asked him, are you Peter Sellers? And Sellers replied briskly, not today, and walked on. <laughs> Can you identify with that? Like, who do you think you are? 
And maybe if you uh, were honest with yourself, you would say, depends upon the day. Maybe even you would say the time of day. Or maybe you would say, well, it depends on the people I'm around in the moment. I think if we're honest with ourselves, our, our sense of who we are often changes, doesn't it? And even though we may disagree with the postmodern philosophy behind identity politics, I think we can empathize, really, again, if we're, if we're very honest with ourselves. I think we can, we can identify with confusion about our identity. Are, are, the question is, are we, are we destined to live our lives like that? Is, that? is that the way it has to be? At worst, constantly confused about our identity, or maybe at best, shape-shifting from moment to moment or from person to person? Is that, is that the best that it gets? Is that the best that we can hope for? Does, does a relationship with Jesus Christ make any difference to that, or is our identity always in flux, like everyone else? If you have a Bible with you this morning, I'd like for you to turn with me in it to the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 1. Gospel of John, uh, chapter 1 in the New Testament. And the thing that is so fascinating about the Gospel of John is the way it begins. Now, I'll just be perfectly honest with you. It's a book that, you know, when I talk to people who are new Christians or people who uh, aren't very familiar with the Bible, John is not a book that I often recommend uh, that they begin to read because the first 18 verses are pretty theologically dense. John starts his gospel with this extraordinary prologue that goes all the way back to eternity past, and he, and he makes this remarkable declaration. Look at, look at verse 1, John chapter 1, verse 1. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that his, has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We'll stop there for a moment. And I realize you can probably see why I don't recommend this to people who are brand new Christians or who are new to the Bible, because I realize that all of that sounds very esoteric, and you probably wonder what in the world could any of that have to do with the issue of, of identity. Well, give me just a chance. Give me just a moment, and I think I can show you how that affects the issue of your identity. We know from the rest of the Gospel of John that the person that John is describing here is Jesus. The Greek word that John uses uh, to refer to Jesus that is translated word is the, is the Greek word logos. And the word logos was, was a loaded, a philosophical term. It was a philosophical term. For centuries before Jesus, the uh, Greek philosophers had been after the, the logos. The Greek philosophers had said there is a truth, there's a principle that gives us the reason, the purpose, and the logic for, for everything in life. If we could find the logos, it would, show us, it would show us meaning in life. And Basically, the word logos meant what's the, what is the meaning of life? What, what is the one principle? What is the truth that everything is going toward that would make sense out of things, that would show us the, the logic of things? And for centuries, the Greek philosophers had argued about this. Some said, some said this is the logos, and others said, said, no, this is the logos. But by the time of Christ, they'd essentially given up looking for the logos. The Greek uh, philosopher Heraclitus said, that, he said, there is no unifying point. There is nothing absolute. Everything is change. Everything is relative. So live any way you want. In other words, 
whatever meaning that life has, you're going to have to find it yourself. And if you think about it, that, that's a very postmodern idea, isn't it? That there is no, oh, you know, the fancy word they use. There is no meta-narrative. There's no larger story to life. There's no objective reality. There's no object and, and subject of life. So life is, you know, whatever you define it to be. You're a self-determining, autonomous being. Now, that has a ton of different implications. But as it relates to your identity, it means simply this that you are the sole determiner of your identity. See, see that's, that's what a postmodern culture says. That you are the sole, there's no larger narrative, there's no creator, there's no object and subject of life, there's no meaning in life. You determine who you are. You are the sole determiner of your identity. You say, you are who you say you are. And we're taught that the way to figure out who you are is by looking inside, right? So what is it that you most want in life? What are your dreams? What are your desires? What are your, what are your deepest longings? That's how you define yourself, by what you want, by what you feel. And so a young man goes out in the world and he says, my identity, the reason I exist, is that I want to be a lawyer. That's, that's, that's my identity. Or a young woman goes out into the world and says, my identity is, is writer. I'm going to be a writer. I want to be a great writer, she says to herself. That's my identity. I'm a writer. Someone else says, I'm going to be a great mother, just, just like my mother was. I'm going to be a great mother. That's my identity. My, that's my identity. Get married, have children, be a mother. That's my identity. Now, the reality is that, that most of us have multiple, like we have... We have multiple dreams and desires and longings and our identity gets wrapped up in the fulfillment of each of them. But here's, see, here's the question. Uh, what's the problem with tying the fulfillment of your dreams and your identity uh, uh, to your dreams and longings? What's, what's, the, what's the problem with tying your identity to your dreams and longings? What, what's the problem? What's the problem? Well, one of the problems is that dreams have a flip side. Because your dreams can also become your worst nightmares, can't they? Uh, what if your dreams don't come true? What if, you, what if you don't or what if you can't, what if you can't achieve them? What if someone else denies your deepest longings, desires, and dreams? What if someone says you can't have your dream? Who, who are you then? See, you see the problem? Dreams can become nightmares. They have a flip side. They can become nightmares if you can't fulfill them. Like, go back to the young man whose dream is to be a lawyer. Can you imagine what he feels? Like, if that's his identity, to be a lawyer, can you imagine what he must feel when he takes the bar exam? It's not just an exam. It's an existential crisis. Who is he if he fails? Or the young woman who, who wants to be a writer, everything she writes, every paragraph, every essay, every article, every blog post, and the comments that people make about it are either a validation of her identity or an assault on her identity. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, do you, you get this, right? right? You understand. See, if you, if, you, if you make your dreams, if you make your desires, and you make your longings your identity, you introduce all kinds of distortions and pathologies and dysfunctions into your personality. Why? 
because you become you, your very self, the essence of who you are becomes emotionally dependent upon fulfilling them or you don't have a self. You don't have an identity. See, that's the problem. Everything and everyone in your life will, becomes a, will become a means to validating yourself or a rejection of yourself. And even if you get what you dream, you live your life in fear of losing it. If your dreams and desires and longings are your identity, your dreams also become your worst nightmare. Uh, many years ago, another church, another time, a young man in my church wanted to, uh, he wanted to make the PGA Tour. It was his lifelong dream. Uh, he was a tremendous golfer. Uh, he was incredibly gifted. Every time, though, he went to Q School. Do you know what Q School is? Like, it's where you go to get your, you have to, you have to play uh, in these uh, golf tournaments to, to get your card to be on the tour. They call it Q School, qualifying school. Every time he went to Q School to get his qualifying card, he froze up and he had panic attacks, literally had panic attacks. Because if he didn't get his card, if he couldn't be a professional golfer, he would have no idea who he was. And you see, if it's, if it's up to you to determine your identity, if you have to look within to your dreams and longings and desires to find out who you are, you become emotionally dependent upon fulfilling them or you don't have a self. You don't have an identity. And that's a terrible, terrible way to live. But John comes along and by referring to Jesus as the Logos, he, he drops a philosophical and he combines philosophy and theology. He drops a philosophical and theological bombshell on the world and he says, Jesus is the Logos that you've been looking for. In other words, in other words, Greek philosophers, the principle, the reason, the logic that you've been looking for, it's not a principle. It's wrapped up. It's all wrapped up in the person of Jesus. And so he is eternal. That's what, that's what verse 1 is about. Uh, he was with God and, and he was God. Verse, th uh, verse 3, through him all things have been made. He is the creator and sustainer of life. That's the point. Verse 4, in him was life and that life was the light of all mankind. In other words, he is the object and the, and the subject of life. Now, you may recall, I said it last week, uh, you know, I, I don't assume that you remember everything I say from week to week, but you might remember it. And I've said it on many different occasions that when a person becomes a disciple of Jesus Christ, you find that there are all uh, kinds of ideas we have had about life that must be unlearned. Like things that you took for granted about reality, about life, that actually turn out to be very wrong and that you have to unlearn. And here's one. If Jesus is the Logos, if he's the eternal creator of life and the object and the subject of life, then the question about my identity is no longer who am I by reckoning on the basis of my dreams and longing and desires, but whose am I? It's not, it's not me determining who, who am I, but it's whose am I? If Jesus is the Logos, then the question moves from who am I to whose am I, right? And this is really what this whole extraordinary prologue in the Gospel of John is, is building up to. What, what is it that God has been up to from eternity past? What, what has he been about? What has history been about? Well, look at, uh, look, at, look at verse 12, verse 12. 
Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. In other words, God's purpose in history has been to build a family whose identity is derived from Christ. That's what he's been about through all of history. To build a family on earth whose identity is derived from Christ. And you see, as long as you live with the notion that you have to define yourself, and define your own identity, you will always live with the pathologies and the disorders and the dysfunctions that come with self-determinism. Understand that what is being offered here, what John is saying is that you are being given an invitation to come out of the darkness and the isolation and the insecurity of self-determinism and into the light and the fellowship and the security, the unchanging security of the unconditional love of God. It's an invitation, in short, to receive an identity, not to have to determine an identity. Not to have to fight for an identity. Not to, have in, not to have to live in constant wondering about who you are, but instead to be given an identity, to receive an identity. An identity not defined by circumstances, the circumstances of the moment, not defined by your successes or your failures or by the capriciousness of other people's opinions of your worth, but solely through belief in the name of Jesus Christ. That's the invitation that God has extended to, be, to the world, to be a part of the family of God and to be known by an identity that never wavers, never changes, a value that never changes, the very identity of Jesus Christ. It's the greatest security that you could ever have, the greatest privilege that you could ever have, and an identity greater than any that you could choose for yourself. That's the invitation that's being made to all of humanity. It's been made to you to become, through belief in Jesus Christ, a child of God, and to be known by the name of Jesus Christ. And yet... There's something that I, I want you to see about this invitation. Uh, this invitation to be given this identity. And the first thing that I want you to see is that there isn't often a rush to claim it. Like you could call this the unwanted identity. You can see why in verses 9 through 11. Let's go back there. Speaking of Jesus, John says in verse 9, he says, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Now, these are extraordinary verses. And, and frankly, these verses undermine any idea that the gospel is a made-up story. Because if you were going to make up a story of God coming to the earth, to his world, it wouldn't go like this. Like, it wouldn't go like this where his own people don't receive him. You'd never make that story up. In this, in this context, uh, this, this means the Jewish people. The people that God called out of slavery in Egypt, the people that he rescued, that he formed into a nation, that he revealed himself to, that he gave the law to, that he prepared for the coming Messiah. And when he came to his own people, they did not receive him. 
There's an expression that is often used in, in political circles that like a particular committee might, they might receive a report on some issue. But that doesn't mean that they believe anything in the report and it doesn't mean that they're going to do anything with the report. This is a really polite way of saying that they acknowledge that someone wrote it. But when John says that, these, that, that, that the people, that the world, that God's people, that the people didn't receive him, it doesn't even have the veneer of that politeness to it. It means that they turned their backs, they plotted against him, and they crucified him. And I said earlier that I said, you know, that there's this certain hypocrisy to my shock at the illogic and the immorality of identity politics. I think those of us who are in the family of God would be hypocritical too if we said we were shocked by the rejection of Christ by his own people. I think we'd be, I think there's a certain hypocrisy when we act like we're shocked by that because the great tragedy today is that there are many people who claim to be in the family of God and who may well be in the family of God, but choose to identify themselves not by Christ's name, but by their name or their job or their possessions or by the people that they know. See, it's its, its own form of rejection when you do that. If somebody asks you who you are and nowhere in the conversation does the name of Jesus come up, you are a confused Christian. As a member of the family of God, your identity is tied to Christ. There should be no way to talk about you and not talk about him. In other words, the term Christian should not just be a title. It, it is your identification. It, it is just like your name. Being a follower of Christ is the essence of who you are. That's your identity. It is the greatest privilege that you can be given. And not only that, but it is an identity that has transformative power. The early followers of Christ understood the extent of this privilege. They understood who they were and they relished the transformation of being part of the family of God and being identified with Christ. They relished the transformation that that would bring. Uh, if you jumped ahead for the book of John and into the book of Acts chapter 19, it tells us that, that early Christians were known by unbelievers as people of the way because their way of life was so clearly identified with and by Jesus. Would people say the same of you? Has your identity been so completely changed through belief in Christ that people call you by the name of Christ? See, even among the people of God, Christ's name is often the unwanted identity. We'd rather identify ourselves by other things than by the name of Jesus Christ. It's the unwanted identity even though it's the greatest privilege, brings the greatest security, brings the greatest sense of self, an unwavering sense of self. It is often among the people of Christ the unwanted identity. One other thing I want to show you about this identity as a member of the family of God is not just the unwanted identity. If you, if you look back at verse 12, I think you'll also see that it is uh, the universal right the universal right. Read it again, verse 12. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. People are always offering uh, salvation, aren't they, for some. 
like philosophies offer salvation for the intelligent, mysticism for the initiated, uh, religions for the moral, uh, the Jewish faith isn't the only faith that seems centered on those from the right ethnic pedigree. So, so, so don't, when you read verse 12, you cannot read it. Don't, make sure you don't make the mistake of reading it as if it's so normal that it's like water off of a duck's back because it isn't. Notice what it says. It says, yet to all. Like regardless of age or gender or race or moral background, God gives the right to become children of God to all who receive him, who believe in Christ's name. You only have to turn one page uh, of the Gospel of John and you come to chapter 3 in the story of Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a, a member of the Jewish ruling council, a respectable pillar of the religious in crowd. And then you turn one more page and you come to Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman, an outcast, a, a religiously dubious foreigner. Chapter 4. So John means what he says in verse 12, that to all who did receive him, to all who received him, he gave the right to become children of God for a religion that is often thought of as exclusive. This is massively inclusive talk, isn't it? Unbelievably inclusive talk. This universal right to become a member of the family of God, to be identified by the name of Jesus. Now be careful because I am not suggesting uh, a kind of universalism in which everyone is given the right to become children of God regardless of what they believe about Christ. I'm not suggesting that. Verse 12 is very clear about that. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So I'm not talking about universal salvation. I'm also not suggesting it's a right that we can demand. It's not ours just because we are human beings. Look at verse 13. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. In other words, in other words this, 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 this isn't in our genetic makeup. However Christian your parents were, however, Christians, uh, however Christian your family is, they can't give you this right. It's not, it's not made of a human's decision. It's not made of a husband's will. We, we may be able to have children, but no one is naturally born a child of God. We can't produce children of God. We can't order children of God by filling out the right paperwork. They must be born. They must be born. See how verse 13 ends. They must be born of, of, of God. You see, in a world and a society where rank and status meant so much, like in the first century, and so many were slaves with so few rights and so little freedom, imagine having in your hands the right to be in personal relationship with, to be within the family circle of God himself, the right to become a child of God. Imagine what that must have been like. It's no different today. Like every society has its haves or haves not, have nots, whether, whether it comes from class or, or caste or meritocracy or whatever. So many of us live under the shadow of how other people value us or don't value us. And this, this can be painfully true even in, in your own family, can't it? Like how they value you or don't. It can be true at work, it can be tragically true even in church. John says that God gives the right to become children of God to all who believe in him. 
an identity that never wavers, a value that isn't dependent upon what anyone else thinks of you or says about you. I wonder if we have learned yet that one of the key secrets of discipleship is to learn to preach to ourselves. You don't have to be a great preacher to preach to yourself, to take a verse like verse 12, to to read it to yourself and to repeat it to yourself and to counter your negative thoughts or to counter other people's sneers and to counter them with God's verdict on me, with his promise to you as a believer that you are a child of God whose identity is the very identity of Jesus Christ himself. And on the other hand, for those of us who maybe you feel like you have it all and you still want more, what greater security do you want than child of God? What greater security could there be? What greater status can you imagine than child of the creator? What greater identity than the very identity of Christ? When a dream turns into a nightmare, when something you long for goes unfulfilled or you fear it will go unfulfilled and you will no longer have a sense of self, you need to preach to yourself as well. And you need to do it urgently because it is the only, this is the only identity that will keep you sane. Child of God. Invaluable. Child of God. Bearing the name of Jesus Christ on you. Never wavering identity. Never wavering sense of self. Never wavering value. Won't you take a moment, just a moment now, to look again, as familiar as these words may be to you, let your eye gate see it as well as your ear gate, and face the promise And pray that God's spirit would root this promise of the identity, child of God, the name of Christ, that he would root it in your hearts and minds. And when the many voices that you will hear this week, some of them whispering that you're worth far less, that something else is far more important, when they whisper to you this, let this truth, let this right be the one that you and I hold on to. Let's take a moment now and face it and ask the spirit to root it in our hearts and minds. Would you bow with me for prayer? Let me read that verse again. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Even to those who believe in his name this would be a good moment to let the things that you tend to place your identity in to let those come to the surface of your mind right now and to repent to acknowledge all of the pathologies and distortions and dysfunctions that those things have brought into your life.
And for those of you who have come to a place where you have believed in Jesus Christ to affirm this morning that you are a child of God and that that is the greatest privilege and the greatest identity that any human being could ever have. No greater status, no greater security, no greater value than child of God. Would you affirm that in this moment? There may be some of you here this morning who've never never heard this, never understood this, never, never understood that God has invited you to be his child. And that by believing on the, upon the name of Christ that you can be considered now and forever a child of God has nothing to do with your performance, has nothing to do with your goodness, has nothing to do with your badness. It has everything to do with Jesus Christ. And so in this moment, you have the opportunity, God is inviting you in this very moment to believe in the name of Jesus. And what that means is that you recognize that recognize that you are a sinner, but that Jesus Christ is not, and that he died on the cross to pay for your sins, and that through him you can become a child of God. And for the rest of your life and for all of eternity, you will be named with the name of Christ you will be called a child of God. Not because you're so good, but because Jesus was so good. This would be the moment right now, right here. Lord Jesus Christ, it's too much for us to fathom, too much for us to believe. It's too good almost for us to believe. But would you drive it home today? For those who've never come to that place where they've believed in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, in a way that I can't do it, would you communicate the power and the importance and the urgency of this right now in their hearts? To believe upon your name. And for those who have believed in you, Lord, would you, for all of us, would you drive this, the value, the privilege of an identity that never changes, an identity that is based in who you are, the identity, child of God, would you drive that home to us and let us see just a, a glimpse of how much more profound and valuable that is than any of the things that we turn into ultimate things, any of the success or other people's opinions or, or whatever that we would claim as our identity, would you show us how much more valuable being named by the name of Christ is than any of those things. And Lord Jesus Christ, we ask for the transformation that comes with that. And let there be a revolution in the city of Evansville that comes as a result of people in this church and in other churches in this city being transformed by the gospel, the name of Jesus Christ. And it is in your name that we worship and pray this morning. Amen.